Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential. Radio talk show about television. Eileen Graff will join us in our second hour. Eileen Graff, the Broadway star and Grammy-nominated recording artist who is also known around the world as Marsha Owens on Mr. Belvedere. Eileen Graff is also an accomplished teacher. She runs a very interesting vocal performance workshop that we'll tell you more about when she joins us in our second hour. We hope you'll stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'll open up our first hour by welcoming Lynette Rice. Lynette is editor-at-large for Entertainment Weekly, where she covers television programming for both the print and online versions of the magazine. She also hosts Outlander Live for Sirius XM and has moderated many panels for the Paley Center for Media here in Los Angeles, as well as Comic-Con and other venues. Lynette Rice uh, recently wrote an excellent piece for Entertainment Weekly that takes a fresh look at the circumstances surrounding the murder of Hogan's hero star, Bob Crane, on June 29, 1978. A still unsolved mystery that has spawned five books, three investigations, the 2002 movie Autofocus starring Greg Kinnear and Willem Dafoe, and a whole lot of speculation. Lynette Rice, welcome to TV Confidential. It is my pleasure to talk to you. How did you come to write this? Did you pitch the story? Was it assigned to you? Was it an idea that there's something that came across your desk and say, hmm, I got to look into this? Well, a couple years ago, I think it's been like two years, we started doing an um, entertainment crime series. We're looking back on crime stories that happen within the entertainment world. And as you know, there are many. And um, um, <laughs> there are quite a few. Uh, and uh, Mr. Crane's death was one that was on the list that we wanted to get to. And um, I, cause, uh, previously I wrote about Amy O'Kane, an actress from the 80s who did these great teen movies, and then she drove drunk and killed someone. So that was another story that I did. And this came up only because what was fascinating about it was, one, it remains unsolved, but two, in the course of everyone writing about his death back in the day, his private life became very public. And that his private life also possibly had a big hand on how he was killed, why he was killed. So that's what made the case so fascinating. You kind of touched on this. The Bob Crane story has been a very deeply involved uh, part of the fabric of Hollywood for the past 40 years, and uh, you've covered the entertainment industry. You've covered television for many, many years. Did you have any notions about the case going in, or did you somehow block it out and go about this with a clean slate? I really didn't know much about it. I'm 56 years old. I remember Hogan's Heroes. I watched it as a kid. I just was, I loved Robert Clary's character in particular and how cute he was when he would pop out of that <laughs> door where there was like the underground tunnel. Yeah. I remember that show vividly, and so as most people do. But I didn't know the circumstances of his death until I started looking into it. And there are a lot of other people like that, too, So, which was another reason why we did the story. And as, you, as I dug into it more, and, and once I sat down with his son, Robert Crane, I just learned about his life. And I, I, I was born and raised in Southern California, so I know of the station that he really made it big on 
it was in, it was in the, that was a little bit before my time when he was a big radio star. I was a little kid. But I know of the station, and he was a huge presence on the station. He, he was a guy that not only spun music, but he did comedy bits. He had famous actors come through, and he'd interview them. He played the drums. I mean, he was just a, you know, a man of all trades. And I think somebody like him inspired others, the Howard Stearns of the world, the Ryan Seacrest of the world. I mean, he really was a pioneer in that regard. He was a big deal. And so that was his springboard into television, which he really wanted to, to do. So no, and so that's a long answer to, I didn't really know any of this stuff. And then once I dug into it, it was like, whoa, this is crazy. <laughs> but see, that's the best possible approach to tackle any story, wouldn't you say? It's fun that you don't know when you're really learning more about it. Because when we conquer any of these crime stories, uh, you know, there's such a huge appetite right now for crime. Um, it's very hard to find a case that hasn't already been picked apart to death. Mm-hmm. And so the fear is like, are we going to like cover something that everybody already knows about? Because this is, this is something that happened over 40 years. And make no mistake, there's been a ton of attention on it. There's been at least five books, a reporter in Phoenix, did a whole TV special about it. He actually persuaded the state attorney to give him the old blood samples so he could have them retested to see if something was missed. I mean, that was unheard of. But he did a whole special on it, and then he wrote a book. You know, his son wrote a book. Uh, a woman who has become this unofficial spokesperson for Bob's second family, she wrote a book. So there's already been so much written about. So the fear is always like, what am I going to offer that everyone already hasn't written about? But there are people like me that even, and I'm just drowning in pop culture because that's my job. If I didn't know about it, there's probably still a lot of people, a lot of boomers mostly, Mm -hmm. who don't know about the background as well. So in that sense, yes, it was fun to retell the tale, and I, and that included, I flew to Scottsdale, where he was killed. I even, I was like a little paparazzo, and I went to the apartment building <laughs> where his his body was found, yeah. and I took a picture of the apartment building, and we were going to run it, but then it got cut. I was so bummed. <laughs> um, and then the apartment building hasn't changed a bit. Yeah. In fact, his actual apartment unit number is covered by a wreath in, in hope to like dissuade looky-loos from coming by it. I mean, that's still there, but he was doing the dinner theater circuit. That's long gone. But I, I went there to talk to a detective on the case who was great. He's just like, he's like a, a detective out of central casting. Not much of a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I tried to get him to laugh. He was just a facts kind of dude and talked about it a lot. They felt like they found their guy. Unfortunately, he never was convicted. On the line with us is Lynette Rice, Lynette Rice, editor-at-large for Entertainment Weekly. Lynette recently revisited the circumstances of the Bob Crane murder case for the September issue of Entertainment Weekly, and she particularly took a look at how the lack of closure from that unsolved case continues to impact the members of Bob Crane's family and, to some extent, as she just touched on, uh, the community of Scottsdale, Arizona. The September issue of Entertainment Weekly is available wherever magazines are sold. Plus, you can read it online at ew.com. These are my two takeaways from the story, Lynette. 
One is I have had a chance to interview Robert Crane, Bob Crane's eldest son, on my program. I've also had a chance to interview Karen Crane on my program. So I have some knowledge of the fog or lack of closure and the grief that the family continues to live with 41 years later. But apparently the family has drifted apart over the case in recent years, and that made me sad to learn that. Yes, Robert talks about how he hasn't really sat down with his mother or his sisters to talk about what happened, which he finds very odd uh, that they can't talk about it. I mean, his mom has remarried, and, you know, Robert described his stepfather as a saint because he's had to live through all this. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's odd for Robert that they can't talk about it. And I said, well, did they even, like, read your book? And he said, no. He couldn't talk to them for his book, and he doubts that they've even read it. In fact, it sounds like Karen, the one sister that you spoke of, has talked more with the second family. That's how he easily refers to it. His second wife, and they had children together. His second wife was... Patricia Olson, a.k.a. Sigrid Valdis. Yes, she actually was uh, an actress on the show. Mm -hmm. It sounds like Karen talks more to that side of the family than Robert. So it is really odd, and it's sad because it's also an awful subject to talk about. Your dad was murdered, and incredibly unpleasant ending, especially because of what came out about their dad, too. And it's funny because you know, Robert and I will have a, we had a long discussion about it. It's particularly glaring right now because we have the Me Too era going on in mm-hmm. Hollywood. This kind of toxic you know, masculine behavior is no longer tolerated. And so if there was a Bob Crane now, I mean, he would just be crucified. But at the same time, the thing about Bob Crane was, and we really haven't discussed this, is that, you know, Bob loved to meet women out in bars wherever he would circulate. They would willingly come back to a hotel with them and he would take pictures of them naked mm-hmm. with Polaroid camera, and he would film them having sex. These were all willing women. In fact, the detective on the case went back and interviewed a lot of women to see if they were potentially suspects in his death, and he said he never found a woman who was forced against her will to do these things. Because the thought was, maybe it's a jealous boyfriend or something like that. But these women were into it because it was Bob Crane. He was Colonel Hogan, the charming, charismatic, attractive Colonel Hogan, and they were going to sleep with him. And it was the 70s. It was the 70s. It was the era of Hugh Hefner and Playboy magazine at its height. It was the era of the sexual revolution. And as you say, as you say, Lynette, so far as we know, all the women who engaged with Bob Crane— it was consensual, so nothing was done against their will. Correct. But the other thing that you touch on, yes, you know, had this happened today, the Me Too angle, okay, yeah, that would trigger a very different reaction. But at the same time, if you think about it, had this happened today or had this even happened 10 years later uh, in the era of daytime television and rehab centers becoming part of the culture— the public may still be shocked, you know, by learning of Bob Crane's hobby, but at the same time, I would think, and I would be interested to know what 
you might think about this. I would think the avenues for forgiveness or rehabilitating his image or his brand would have been a lot greater than had they been available at the time in June 78. I guess it all depends on the narrative that surrounds whenever you talk about Bob Crane and what he did. Keep in mind that he created these books, these but the books of all his Polaroids, mm -hmm. and what he would do is he'd keep them in his dressing room and show them off. Now, I'm sure while all those women were willing participants, I'm sure when he was shooting their picture, they probably didn't know that they were going to become a prop in his book yeah. and be shown to complete strangers. And, and I don't know if necessarily that narrative was pushed when it was exposed, you know, what this hobby was that Bob did. And so for that, in defense of all those women, that's, I'm sure, you know, while they thought this was a private moment between two adults, he made it public, which was a bad thing, which is a really bad thing. I think about Robert, his son, you know, his son, as much as he loves his dad, he loved his dad, he's also realistic and said, okay, what he did was not mm -hmm. cool. It was not cool. It was skeevy. And it was really salacious. It just wasn't cool. But you know, he also he but he knows his dad had some serious flaws, and he definitely did get to the point that I got to change my life. I've got to change my ways. He kind of broke up with his friend and partner in crime with these filming, you know, filming and taking pictures. That was John Carpenter, John Henry Carpenter, who ended up being the key and only suspect. And he tried to break up with them a couple of days before his death. And so uh, there was an attempt there to change. But I think even at that point, he was only talking to his pastor or something like that when he really needed so much more. Yeah, the line in Robert's book, Crane, Sex Celebrity and My Father's Unsolved Murder, the line in that that always stays with me, Lynette, is Bob Crane said he was beginning to see orange for the first time in his life. In other words, he was beginning to see a spectrum of things, and as Robert Crane relates in the book, and as you just alluded to, maybe part of it was he was 49 years old. You know, 49, one turns 50. You, you think about things a little bit differently, and, and he was trying to weed out bad elements of his life and try to, you know, look ahead and become a better person and grow, perhaps, for the first time in his life. And that's all part of the tragic elements of the story. Yes, it, it definitely, it definitely is. Did he deserve to die? No. Of course he didn't deserve to die. Was his behavior appalling? Yeah, considering for somebody who purports to love women, he's treating them as objects. He's not respecting who they are. I mean, look, men are evolving. Men, yeah, men hadn't evolved. Mm -hmm. But he certainly, the way that he died, it was, it was horrible. The whole thing is just very sad. It's just very sad. On the line with us is Lynette Rice, editor-at-large for Entertainment Weekly. Lynette recently wrote an excellent piece on the unsolved murder of Bob Crane and how that continues to affect the actor's family and the community of Scottsdale, Arizona. You can read Lynette's article in the September issue of Entertainment Weekly, which is available wherever magazines are sold. And this comes to the second takeaway from me, Lynette, is that... As a kid, I, I had never been to Scottsdale, but I knew that Scottsdale existed because I listened to a lot of baseball games. And so to me, you know, when you're 13 years old, you always think of, oh, Scottsdale, that's where the Giants play in spring training. <laughs> but as you point out in the article, 
a cloud exists over the town of Scottsdale that has never gone away. Yeah, it's, I, I, when I was talking to the detective about it, his name is Barry Vassal, I asked him, you know, what did a death like that mean to the community at the time? And, and it, it certainly was, you know, he's certainly their most famous death. I mean, they've had celebrities through there before, but that was mostly because of that dinner theater circuit. I mean, back in the day, these, you know, celebs would do this. They'd do these plays um, for folks after their meal. It was still kind of, you know, the end of the line for actors that weren't getting enough gigs in film or TV, but it wasn't a bad way to make a living. Yeah. And they were all over the country, and, and so their stars would definitely, you know, go through Scottsdale. But this was their most famous, and it, it, it remains that way today. There, uh, I, I, But if you talk to people there now, I don't necessarily know that they would know about it. Um, I just think only the boomers, you know, the great generation would know about it, and, that, and that's it. It's sad that that dinner theater is not even there. So, And the fact that the apartment building hasn't really changed at all. I mean, I think it's, um, I don't know what the color was back then. The only thing that really changed about it is the condominiums now. They're not apartments. But they're, I mean, they're easily accessible. You can, I was able to walk right up next to the door. And so that tells me that people have forgotten about it. You know, whoever lives there, and by the way, whoever lives there is prepared for people like me, <laughs> and they have, like, dark, <laughs> dark screens on the window and, like, yeah. dark screen over the door, so you can't see in at all. But the fact that it, it's so accessible tells me that people have moved on. It's sad. What did you learn the most in the course of researching and writing this story, Lynette, that surprised you? It never ceases to amaze me how much DNA testing has changed our world mm -hmm. and how many cases like this there are out there that will remain unsolved because they simply weren't able to test stuff. Um, I, there was an interesting development that happened on the case some detective was looking over the crime scene photos several years later and noticed in one of the photos that there was a piece of brain tissue inside of John Carpenter's car. And that was enough to convince a judge to actually finally take it to a trial because initially they did suspect Carpenter. They didn't have that brain tissue, but they had another evidence like blood on the outside of his car door that they took to the, the attorney, but the attorney wouldn't uh, arrest him. That picture of that brain tissue, they were able to finally get it into a courtroom, but they didn't have that brain tissue. It was long gone. They couldn't test it. So ultimately, the court case, I mean, he was acquitted. Because it was all basically hearsay at that point, that his defense attorney was able to say, it could have been an angry boyfriend or pissed-off woman because of, you know, his hobby. Again, that, that side of him came and bit him in the butt. You know, that, that was used as a weapon to defend John Carpenter. Maybe it was one of those people. So in the end, his side life made it impossible to solve his killing, which is tragic. The name of the piece is Ugly Things Don't Generally Happen in Scottsdale. It is written by Lynette Rice. You can read it in the September issue of Entertainment Weekly, which is available 
uh, newsstands everywhere, wherever magazines are sold. You can also read it online, EW.com. You can follow Lynette Rice on Twitter at Lynette Rice. Greg Airbar will join us when we come back on TV Confidential. Hi, my name is Lily. My mom and dad used to fight about money all the time. Then one day, I heard them talking about this guy. Some uncle I never knew called Uncle Sam. Well, they say this Uncle Sam guy wanted them to pay him like a gazillion dollars. And they didn't have a gazillion dollars. So they called this company they heard on the radio called The Tax Doctor. And The Tax Doctor worked with Uncle Sam's people. I think they're called the IRS. And they're able to work it out so my mom and dad didn't have to pay Uncle Sam very much money at all. So now mom and dad are happy. And I'm happy too. Thanks, Tax Doctor. If you owe $10,000 or more to the IRS or state, call now and pay less. 800-649-0142. 800-649-0142. That's 800-649-0142. Story Salon is Los Angeles' longest-running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon Gemstones of Narrative, something new, funny, astonishing. Sunset Magazine says, tales tall, tragic, and tantalizing. All of this makes Story Salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available. You can learn more about us by going to our Facebook page or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com. Become an advertiser or underwriter of TV Confidential and let our brand help promote your brand. To find out more, go to televisionconfidential.com slash advertise. Accredited by Guinness World Records, welcome to Archival Television Audio Incorporated. A peerless TV soundtrack archive preserving the audio from television's first three decades, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the golden and silver age of television. For more information, go to atvaudio.com. Ed Robertson, author friend Donna Allen Figueroa, who I understand has a new book out. Yes, it's entitled Fall Again Beginnings. It's the first part of a four-part contemporary romantic series a set against the background of working actors. Something that you know a, little, a thing or two well, about. Well, you write what you know, and I have been working in the business for several years. It is not necessarily autobiographical, but it's based on... Sure, many of the experiences that the actors in my book have, many have happened to me, many have happened to friends of mine. It's not if you're looking for... Valley of the Dolls, it's not, it's grounded in reality. It is grounded in reality, and it's the first in a series. Yes. Called the Fall Again series. Fall Again. Which is available as a paperback as well as an ebook and in Kindle at fallagainseries.com. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at tvconfidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit 
the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.